found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and to do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. The gospel reading is from John chapter 21, beginning at verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved, because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, God. You got to say it loud when he's back. Yeah, that's fine. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the scriptures today, for the ability to open them and to listen from you, to sit at your feet. We pray, Lord, that you would open our ears, open our eyes. Give us strength where we need it. Give us humility where we need it. But above all, Lord, let us see you. And all this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's not as hot as they said it was going to be. Thankfully, Chuck did, did text me on the drive-in. He said, you might consider jean shorts and a black tank top. <laughs> I didn't find that funny. No, I'm just kidding. But we're in a second series of, for the little two-part series that I decided to do on the problem of sin, the problem of suffering, the, the challenges of this life. What are we to make of these things? If you weren't here last week, we were looking at the question of what happens when suffering seems to come out of nowhere. It's the cancer for a child. It's the car accident that no one thought would happen. It's someone is taken away, a loss of a career, uh, something breaks in someone's life. It's the, the problem of the un, uninvited, obviously, but obviously the, 
But it's not the case that someone was sinning and that sin caught up with them. It's something breaks in their life, and how do you deal with it? We basically said in that last week that the answer is, is you don't start asking the question, what was the tipping point? When did I finally make God mad enough to, spite, to sort of strike out at me and do something? Rather, sin is a problem that we all have, and Christ very specifically says, don't try to count who's worse, who's bad, and if they're bad enough, at what point does God start paying them back in a sort of retributive way immediately every single time they sin? He said, rather, everyone should be repenting of sin, and everyone ought to deal with the problem of suffering. This week, we're dealing with the knuckleheads. We're dealing with real sin, the real question of what happens when your sin catches up with you. What do you do when you have actually broken something in your life? Some laziness, some, some cutting of corners lo- leads to the loss of a job. Some relational breaking within the marriage leads to adultery or an affair. Or something even down to the small things of on the drive here today, you and your spouse were having it out because you just couldn't stand to sit with that person anymore in the car and have to hear, put up with their stuff anymore. Or the kids were driving you crazy. Or your neighbors are driving you crazy. Or something is happening and you just feel this festering sense that you just had enough and you want to scream and there's this sense of sin and you know it's wrong but you can't see a way out of it. What's the biblical pattern for how you deal with that? Because the fundamental fact is, is everyone at some point asks the question along the road of the Christian life, when will I see change? I know I'm not supposed to base my Christian life on that change, but I also know that at some point the Holy Spirit works and I see fruit, and I ain't seeing any right now. What's going on here? And the fact of the matter is, is when you read the Psalms and you read some of these passages like we did today, And you see places in even the New Testament where it talks about those who are the workers of iniquity. You shall not know the Father. You shall not know Christ. And you will get to the end and Christ will say, I never knew you. There's always some part of every person, and there is certainly even more than some small part of a lot of people, that says, well, I wonder if that's me. I wonder if I'm not doing enough. I wonder if I'm not changing enough. I wonder where I'm breaking down. And the passages we read today actually give us a symbol, a path, a way forward for that question. Because the fact of the matter is, is in this room, you're all broken sinners, and some of you right now immediately are sitting here saying, I feel even more broken than before. Or if you're not saying it now, at some point, very near in the future or even a bit longer, you're going to say, I feel broken right now. I feel like I've screwed everything up. I feel like nothing is repairable. I feel like it's gone. Did I even believe this Christian thing for a while? And if I believed it, what am I doing wrong that it's not working out? Why am I not seeing this change? Well, let's go to the Scriptures. The Scriptures will set us straight. Because the fact of the matter is, is what the Bible says about someone in that position is that you're actually much more programmed for the gospel now than you ever were before when you were haughty and you thought you were doing it well. When you look at the psalm, for example, it begins in this very um, uh, open way by describing the personality of someone who was just closed off to God. 
And the number one trait of the person in that psalm, the number one reality of that person, is they will not listen, they will not hear anything else than what they want and what they want to be. All they know is that what their heart desires is truth, and what they, anyone, anyone says to them differently, whatever might challenge that, is considered to be wrong-headed, foolish, not to be listened to. They are uncounselable, if you want to make that word a thing. They cannot hear advice ever. Their wants become the truth, and anything else becomes falsity, and that is the basis of this person who cannot hear anything from God. And the reality is, is that isn't some of us uh, very often from time to time, yes? None of you wants to admit your faults. We have a saying with my son, with Owen. He's five now. When he has to admit his faults, we have to say, move your lips, son. Because when we say, say sorry to sister, he says, sorry. What? Say it again. Sorry. You know, he doesn't actually want to say the words. You know this feeling. It comes out of every one of us, whether you're a mature adult or a child. You feel this way. You act this way. What you want is what you want. And at any point, if someone says, you've done wrong, you go, oh, not really. Okay, fine, a little bit. Just enough to maybe say the utterances but not move my lips. But go through the rest of that psalm. The rest of the psalm actually contends that what's happening is not just periodic sinfulness here. It's not merely the sense that someone doesn't want to be corrected. That's all of us. Rather, what the psalm paints is a picture of somebody who believes that if they hide it enough, if they completely conceal it, if they trick everyone around them, that they're actually getting away with it. Because the fact of the matter is, is for everyone I've known who actually uh, feels a sense of remorse, they're going to want to hide it. They're not going to want to immediately just sort of always be confessing every single problem of their life. But for those for whom the Spirit is at work, there is also this sense whenever you get the opportunity to confess it, whenever you have that heart-to-heart -heart with your spouse or your child, whenever you uh, get to the point of confession, at some point you say, I've been wanting to say this for a long, long time. I've been hiding this, and it's been making it worse, but somehow I need to say this because it's not true. I don't want to hide this, and God sees it. If you read the psalm, what the person is doing there is the exact opposite of that. They think they're getting away with it. They think that God can't see this. They think that if they hide it, schema, schematize it enough, that they will actually get away with this sinful pattern of their life, and that it doesn't fundamentally matter. It is, in other words, the difference between a heart that feels compunction and remorse and one that doesn't. And you go down to the mid part of that psalm, and what the psalmist says is, God, you see everything. Your justice, your righteousness, you see into those areas of the human heart. You see those things that are done when no one's looking. You see those thoughts that creep up when no one's listening. You see all those things. The confession, in other words, of the Christian is, I ain't got nowhere to hide. I have nothing that I'm going to get away with here. And even when I'm acting like a fool and I think I'm getting away with something and I think I'm, I can act this way or be bitter or whatever it might be, when even at that moment you are sort of divided because you know you're not getting away with it, you know God sees everything, and you know there's no hiding from this. 
The case of the psalm, in other words, is person who actually thinks they're getting away with it. The real Christian says, even when I'm a sinner, I ain't getting away with this. Now, what happens when you actually find yourself in the midst of a moment where you have to confess? Okay, you know you're not getting away with it, but that doesn't make it any easier when you get to the point where sin has to be confessed. You have to actually move your lips, and you have to actually say you're sorry to your spouse, or to your child, or to your parent, or to your neighbor. What happens then? Well, then we get to Peter. A lot of us in this room are Peter. Not to allegorize it too much, but we all know the type. If we affirm that God is the head of the church, there's a bunch of us that think that we're the neck, that we actually churn the thing, that we actually are the ones holding it together. We're the ones with the right answers, the smart answers. We read the right books. We know the right words. We have certain positions of status or leadership, or we just simply are better than other people. We all have this, this desire sometimes to feel like we're doing it right. Well, Peter was one of those guys. Peter wasn't like the person in, in Psalms, uh, in the psalm that we read, in the sense that he thinks he's getting away with it. Peter's just a knucklehead. He's a sinner. And what happens in Peter's life, not only at this point, when we read this in John chapter 21, but ongoing throughout his life, is Peter has foot and mouth disease. He has moments where he delivers really important messages to the church. He preaches the first sermon at Pentecost. He does all kinds of things that are important for the role of the church. But he also does things like uh, beg Jesus not to go to the cross. Or after uh, Pentecost, he still keeps Jews and Gentiles eating separately because he thinks that that's you know, too radical to, to mix them back together, this type of thing. Here in this scene, you actually find Peter at his lowest. You find Peter at a moment when he actually knows he cannot do anything to repair himself. His uh, style of leadership, his personality at this point has utterly failed him because despite the fact that he swore otherwise, he denied Jesus three times. Not just denied him, but at the third time when asked, he cursed and said, I don't know the man. All while Jesus was going to the cross for the very sins that he's committing at that moment. So it doesn't jump off the page, but what Peter is doing at this point is he's sulking. He's standing off. He is ashamed. He thinks he has no right to stand before Christ. He has no right to be a part of the disciples. He has no right to be readmitted, you might say, back to the church. Here's the problem with you and me. Is if we are those who have our ears opened, and if at times we get called out, and if at times we have to confess our faults, the problem is, is that we, like Peter, tend to do what? Wonder if it's all over for us now. Oh, I did it again. Oh, I'm not changing that. I, I, I said I wouldn't do that again. I said I wouldn't use angry words again. I said I wouldn't lust again. I said, oh, I said I wouldn't do that again. Here I am doing it again. So what do you and I do? We feel shame. Usually what happens is we feel so ashamed that we feel like we have to walk away as if we have to hide ourselves, find another church community, find something else, never admit it. We don't even know where to begin. Here's Peter doing the same thing. 
Peter at this point believes, and he actually has some right, uh, he has some strong beliefs on this. I think he's right on this. He believes that he has no right to be readmitted back into the disciples. He is the outsider who was formerly the insider, now sitting there eating breakfast with Jesus. The man who was invited into the inner sanctum, the inner three, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane. He was part of the inner core, now part of the one who thinks he ought to be outside of the community. And Jesus does something that is pretty remarkable. Jesus doesn't simply say, ah, get on back in there, no big deal. He doesn't apply grace in this silly sense where we don't acknowledge that what Peter has done is deny him three times. Rather, what Jesus does is he asks him three times, do you love me? In a restorative, a little bit of salt in the wound, but a reminder at each point, do you actually love me? And Peter gets more and more theological as the questions keep coming. By the end, he's going, well, you know, duh, come on. You know that I love you. You know everything. Stop asking me. But why would he keep asking him? He's going to keep asking him because he wants him to get the point. For every time you failed me, for every time you sinned, I have nothing but love and grace to cover it. You see, at each point, he's being reminded. Peter is being reminded. You denied me once. Do you love me? Yes. Okay, feed my sheep. No, seriously, do you love me? Yes, I said I love you. Okay, you denied me a second time, but remember, feed my sheep. A third time, even more so, it gets more and more poignant as it deepens in the, in the scene. What he, Jesus is saying is, don't forget that you actually denied me, but it doesn't matter in the sense that you love me and I have grace for you. See, for some of us, grace just simply means don't mention it, don't talk about it, never confess it again. It's just simply lavished upon you in the sense that God doesn't want to actually deal with actual sin in your life, in my life. But Christ actually wants to deal with that sin in our lives. He wants to deal with specific failures, specific sins, specific times that you and I deny Christ and follow our own desires, specific sins. Not sin in the kind of generic, abstract sense that doesn't actually hurt, but he wants to deal with the specific ways you speak unkindly to one another, the specific ways that you do lustful things in your heart or in your actions, or the specific way greed or gluttony or any of the things that we know we're not supposed to be doing are manifested in our lives. Christ wants to deal with those specifically. And here with Peter, he says, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Of course, theologically, Jesus doesn't have to ask more than once. He doesn't even have to ask the first time. What's he doing? He's applying the medicine. Because there's something cathartic, there's something renewing about confessing audibly that we are sinners and confessing audibly that we love Christ and saying this out loud over and over and over again. There's something going on here that defies logic because all of this is true on paper, but yet Christ still takes Peter through the application. So for some of you, you might want it to just simply vanish simply because you said sorry that one time. You screwed something up. You, you ruined a relationship. You ruined something. You broke something, or something is just festering in your heart. 
The fact of the matter is, is usually we want the fix to be quicker by, by a factor of a thousand than the actual application of the sin that got it to the point of festering. So we spent months and months and months and years and years and years uh, tending to this grievance, this, this frustration. And then we go, all right, fine, I'm sorry. Don't stop talking about it. I said I'm sorry one time. Why? Because we think that the medicine ought to be applied just once and that's it. What does Christ do to Peter? He applies it again and again and again, and he lets Peter know that he knew everything that went on when he was on the cross, that he knew Peter's sin. Last time I told a story of a student who died this past semester. I had another run-in with a student two semesters ago. It doesn't happen that often. It just happens to have happened twice. Um, But two semesters ago, there was a student, African-American student, who was having trouble at the campus. He was having trouble because he was uncomfortable. Now, our campus is 30% people of color. He wasn't uncomfortable with the fact that he was one of only maybe a handful of African-American students. He was uncomfortable because his grades were not going very well. And he had been in contexts where people did not like him for the color of his skin, so he assumed that uh, Gordon Conwell was going to be the same way. And so at one point, it ended up that he and I were in a room together to talk about this because he had started to say this thing out loud, and we didn't know that he felt this way. And about an hour in, after he was very, very upset, very much ranting, very much concerned about uh, the way we were treating him, I just looked at him and I said, I don't know why I said this, but I just did. I said, why don't you just shut up and admit one thing to me? I said, shut up about all this stuff. You just admit for once. You think I think you're the N-word. You think that I'm a rich snob that's overeducated. And I said, and I'll admit that I think you're hard to deal with, that you're hard to talk to because you scowl as you walk around the hallway. And I have no idea how to talk to you, but I want to talk to you, but you drive me nuts. I said, can we both admit that? I haven't seen an actual exorcism actually in my life. But you would have thought one had happened in that room suddenly. Because he said, yeah. It's exactly what I think has happened. He says, I think people here don't like me. And I can tell you don't necessarily like me. I said, all right. I said, we've admitted it. I said, that doesn't mean anything's fixed right now. I said, we feel calm, and we feel like we can talk about this, but let's actually start applying the change to your heart, to my heart, so that when we pass each other in the hallway, we smile, we stop, we catch up, and we're friends, and our relationship is strong. And notice the difference there. For some of us, we want to say, all right, I did it. I don't want to talk about the cure. I just want to say, I admit that I have done something wrong. But you don't want to say, and I want to keep admitting that this is going to be a problem for me. That I have to keep confessing, and I have to keep admitting, and I have to keep coming back to, and I need help. We're an admit it once kind of McDonald's culture. We want to say it once and let it go. But what the scriptures always again and again show us is it doesn't go away that fast. There has to be a a workman-like, craftsman-like work of the Holy Spirit in your heart that pulls out the thing that is poisoning you and puts into you the life eternal of the living water of the gospel. That does not happen by one admission of guilt, by one admission of a problem. 
that only happens through a life exposed to the gospel in which you say, look, I'm going to keep saying this is wrong, and by the way, the student and I keep coming back to this problem. We keep having uh, moments where we bump our toe on it because it didn't go away just because we admitted it once. We keep having to talk about it. And there are other situations like this in your life. You can't simply admit things once and let them go. To do that is to be more like the situation of the person in the Psalms who thinks that you can just kind of block everything out, let it go, and that it'll be gone just by simply ignoring it. Rather, let Christ work on you. It won't always feel good. You're going to be like my son Owen, and sometimes you're not going to want to move your lips. You're not going to want to admit it. But if you remain like a child, then Jesus won't let you go. Because the fact of the matter is, is you have to keep on admitting these things if you want to see change. The reality of the Christian gospel is that it stands logic on its head. You don't change and then see the change. Rather, you have to admit that you can't. But you have to keep admitting that you can't. You have to be broken like Peter in order for that change to keep happening, for the Holy Spirit to work. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters for whatever challenges confront them, whatever sins they might feel in their heart, big or small. Like the psalmist, we admit that nothing is hidden from you. But Lord, let it not be merely exposed and visible to you in our minds, but let us know that you are at work on it. Lord, I pray for those who need to repent even now. Repent to their spouses, their children, their friends, their neighbors to themselves, whatever it might be, I pray that you would give them grace to know that repentance might be a challenge they might not want to, but it is the path to life. That grace covers their repentance, that it gives them the freedom to repent again and again and again, even of the thing that they said they were sorry for so many times before. And that in that, Lord, you will change us. So we pray all this in Christ's name by the power of his spirit. Amen.